0: This is Guns N' Butter. There's Remember in
1: 2008, Hank Paulson wanted uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars to give to foreign banks and Goldman Sachs, and Congress said no, based on his one-page memo. So they crashed the market. The next day they said yes. Uh, then in May, of the flash crash of 2010, similarly, they were going to pass the reform bill, they want to pass the reform bill, they crashed the market, then it gets watered down. Uh, just this past week, um, Congress, the new Republican Congress said, look, if you don't uh, preserve these tax cuts for the rich, we're going to crash the market. Th- th- those are the words that they use. The market will crash. So they've got a loaded gun here that pointed at people's heads and they keep using it over and over again. If you don't give us more money, we're going to crash the market. The, the, the market is being held hostage. They know that they can crash the market because the computers are set up to crash the market when at the push of a button. And the idea of markets functioning on their own, in their own and their own you know, to find prices and to go through this thing called free market capitalism is, is finished. Now it's just being used as a weapon.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Max Kaiser. Today's show, banks, bailouts, and manufactured market crashes. Max Kaiser is a financial analyst, television and radio host, journalist and entrepreneur. He is host of the bi-weekly Max Kaiser Report on Russia Today, is co-host of the weekly radio talk show The Truth About Markets on Resonance 104.4 FM in London, and is host of the weekly On the Edge with Max on Press TV. He produces documentary films covering markets for Al Jazeera's People and Power series and is a frequent guest on Al Jazeera English and France 24. He blogs for the Huffington Post. Max Geiser, welcome.
1: Yes, great to be here. Fantastic. You've got a great spot here in Paris in this room. The snow is falling. A rare treat.
0: Well, uh, Max, yes, here we are in Paris, you live in Paris, you've lived in France for how long, and why did you move here from the United States?
1: Well, I came here originally in 1990 for a Christmas party, and I loved it so much, I phoned in my resignation to my Wall Street stockbroker job, and I ended up staying here for five years. Uh, Then I sold a treatment for a film to Miramax that took me to L.A., Uh, then I started... uh, a company in LA. Then I sold the company and I came back to France. So, over the past 20 years I've been here a total of 15 years.
0: So, you initially moved here because you loved it here. Mm-hmm. Now, would you ever consider moving back to the United States?
1: Well, well, not really. I'm, you know, this, the US is becoming uh, less and less interesting. Uh, the rest of the world is is uh, breaking away from from the u.s. And in a lot of different ways both culturally and financially and so you want to be where there's growth and interest the u.s. is a dying country and other countries around the world are growing so you know it's not fun to be in a it's like being in a morgue when you're being at a, at a wake when mm-hmm. you're at the u.s. it's like uh, you know saying your last last uh, farewell to uh, a dying friend it's you know there's only so much of that i can take
0: now with regard to your background, Max, you have a patent on software for stock trading. What about electronic high-speed trading? What are the capabilities that computer program trading give the banks, for instance?
1: It's a capability to steal. So high-frequency trading, as it's called. Uh, for example, a bank like Goldman Sachs, they, they park a computer server next to the New York Stock Exchange, and it siphons cash away from the exchange by flooding the exchange with uh, bogus orders or quote stuffing, as it's called. This is meant to manipulate the price and to uh, offset the manipulation with orders in different markets, uh, in ways that allow them to simply siphon off cash, a hundred million dollars a day. Which again could be used to create jobs and do something dynamic with that money. It doesn't need to just be stolen by Goldman Sachs and other banks and and, and award it to themselves uh, at the end of the year as part of their record uh, Christmas bonus, uh, it's too bad. That money could be used to uh, educate people and create jobs, but instead it's being stolen and it's used to just uh, feather the nest of this oligarchy.
0: Well, that's right, and I'd like you to explain a little bit in more detail to listeners exactly how this is done. Now, you have some quotes that I've read about what went on in the stock market in May of 2010 and September in 2008. These were some dramatic drops uh, in in the exchange, and those were very easily manipulated by uh, high-frequency trades. Could you, uh, because it's really not as complicated as it sounds, could you sort of break it down and tell people exactly how this is done?
1: Sure. Well, normally, the prices on exchanges occur as the result of supply and demand so if there's a lot of demand prices go up and if there's a lot of supply prices go down and the the market is a neutral intermediating force that allows this price discovery as it's called to occur so you don't know what the prices are going to be minute by minute because uh, according to adam smith's invisible hand theory uh, buyers and sellers arrive in the market anonymously and uh, the market the invisible hand uh, gives everyone a mutually beneficial price uh, based on uh, this um, this characteristic of clearing prices at a mutually beneficial price that satisfy, satisfies both the buyer and the seller. Now, in high-frequency trading, it's the opposite. You pick the price first, and then you fill in the orders to match the price. So in Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, they look at the market and they say, well, we want IBM to trade at this price, or we want this... Uh, cotton futures contract to trade at this price or we want the S&P futures to trade at this price. They pick a price first and then they program the computers to fill in all the orders to get them to that price. So clearly that's not a market functioning in a way that's democratic or egalitarian in any way. That's a market that's broken, that's a market that's being abused, that's a market manipulation scheme and if you know what the price is going to be before the prices occur You can trade around that and make money illicitly, as they do. So basically, it's just turning the whole market-making function uh, inside out. My technology, the virtual specialist technology patent number 5950176 in the U.S. Patent Office, now referenced over 132 times by various other trading, algorithmic trading technologies, is one of the core uh, technologies for making markets in this new environment of computer trading. And I originally designed it to prevent this very thing from happening. Uh, that was my original intent. When I was creating uh, the Hollywood Stock Exchange, for example, I created this technology so that our traders could not manipulate prices and I needed to be able to improve upon all the existing technologies that were around. But that technology fell into the hands of the enemy, uh, unfortunately. That technology fell into the hands of Cantor Fitzgerald. And uh, they moved the whole company uh, as part of an acquisition to the top floor of the World Trade Center uh, just a few months before 9-11. So you could call that karmic justice or poetic justice or whatever. But uh, they their, their, their deal, which took control of this technology, which was a, a questionable deal to begin with, uh, it, it's not as if they got away with it. Uh, they had to pay a price. But was that price high enough? I think that's, that's, a, that's a question people have to ask themselves. The bankers are still free to commit these crimes. There's no rule of law. There's no reform movement. There's, no, there's nothing stopping uh, them from continuing to uh, ransack the economy, to steal uh, the critical capital needed to have a functioning economy. And um, there's, there's very little between them and a totalitarian oligarchy state, uh, which is forming right now, and it's on a global basis.
0: Well, that's right. You mentioned Candor Fitzgerald. That's absolutely right. They lost a lot of people in those towers on 9-11. Um, yeah, and a
1: lot of them were betting on the rumor that planes were going to be involved in a massive terror attack, which was uh, information that was circulating before the events. And you saw this, you know, when I was working on Wall Street, uh, I was mostly an uh, options trader. And the options market is a very sensitive market. It can... Um, it picks up on information quickly and discounts that information. You see that in the prices very quickly. The prices for the airline stocks uh, that were affected by that uh, event were already moving two weeks before the event. The, 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 the company that was clearing the trades, Alex Brown & Sons in Baltimore, uh, their former uh, CEO was working with George Tenet at the CIA in the White House as the deputy CIA director. So clearly there's a channel of information from the White House to Alex Brown. They're trading on these options, uh, 10 times normal volume. The, the prices are highly erratic. It's a telltale sign. Anytime you, This is what happens after airlines blow up. You see this type of price action. This was the first time you saw it before the airplanes blew up. There should have been a red flag to regulators. There should have been an investigation. My point is that not that, not that the Buzzy Krongard, who was the... Uh, this, the uh, involved in all this, who was a former Alex Brown guy and uh, George Tenet. It's not that they were the architects of the uh, 9-11 disaster, but they there was enough information floating around soon enough that they could have probably prevented it, but they voted with their pocketbook instead. They realized that there was easy money to be made, millions of dollars were made, $2 million was left unclaimed at Alex Brown, as mentioned in the uh, 9-11 report, and um, so these guys put their own interest ahead of the of those people who died on that day's interest and that's kind of the american story these days individuals are willing to take the money and let millions of people in this case now with the economy breaking down uh die and there's no uh cohesion at all uh politically socially economically in the u.s and that's why it's uh, uh, a wounded dying animal at this point and it's not fun being there. I'd rather be in a country that's dynamic, that's growing, that's uh, full of interesting people, interesting ideas. Uh, there you have it.
0: Well, that's right. You know, the first show that I ever did on Guns and Butter, which was conceived of as an economic show uh, because of the timing, was on the massive put options on United and, uh, United and American Airlines. And, in fact, I have a friend who worked at the uh, 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 San Francisco Stock Exchange at the time. He said everybody was talking about those puts. So that was very obvious. Now, hasn't the SEC claimed that they uh, either don't know who did the trading or they're not going to reveal that?
1: Well, they refuse to uh, take a close look at it uh, because it would open up. They'd have to take a close look at a lot more that's going on uh, in terms of the insider trading and market manipulation that's going on. I mean, one of the biggest scams today would be the investigation into HSBC and J.P. Morgan into their manipulation of the silver market. And um, this involves uh, J.P. Morgan uh, in in a very interesting way. And um, once the SEC or the CFTC or any of the regulators, once they start to look under the hood and really start to look at what's going on here, the whole thing unravels. So they're afraid, again, they're afraid of free market capitalism. They're afraid to look at who's actually buying and selling what. They're afraid to see how the money is circulating because they're afraid of what they're going to find. They're going to find that there's a lot of people in the U.S. who are ambivalent about 9-11, who profited from 9-11, who are setting up the next 9-11, because it's easy money. When stocks crash, you make money in a compressed amount of time. You know, if you look at the history of markets, bull markets, uh, the big moves, you might see one or two or three years, like we saw in the 1980s is a good example. You had a huge move for five years, uh, and then on the uh, crash of uh, October of 1987, we had a 20-22 market correction, 22% correction in a day. Now, the amount of money that was made on that day eclipsed all the money you know on an individual trading basis. You had enormous amounts of cash being made on that day. So the the, the catastrophes are a lot more profitable in a lot uh, compressed period of time than the than the growth periods, and unfortunately, the people in in the banking system in the U.S now are so greedy that they don't care about the bull markets anymore. They just want to make a lot of money quickly by setting up these crashes. And they crash the market all the time for that reason. And it's destabilizing the country. It's destabilizing the economy. And the rest of the world realizes this, and they're taking actions to get out of the dollar uh, China, Russia now doing deals outside of the dollar. Uh, Brazil doing deals outside of the dollar. The growth economies of the world are trying to get out of the dollar. <laughs> they realize it's a it's a currency that's uh, uh, highly problematic.
0: What was occurring in May of 2010 that led the banks to uh, manufacture a stock drop? What was the point of that?
1: Uh, instant profits. It's just a uh, flash crash of that period was... Uh, Part of an ongoing um, market manipulation scheme, and um, the, the computers are basically running themselves, uh, and uh, they realize that they can uh, crash a market quickly, uh, pocket lots of uh, cash, and move on. It, it, it's the, the the computers are set up to be to, to steal. That's what an algorithmic trading is is set up to do humans don't steal, the computers steal. The humans can program the computers to steal and then the, the computers go in there and they, they, they steal. They, they rake the system. They, they pull out as much capital as possible. And this is uh, undermining the economy. The economy needs capital to function. But if the capital is constantly being stolen by these computers, it can't function. And as a result, it's not functioning. It's not generating jobs. It's not generating growth. And, and to replace that income the government is resorting to nickel-and-diming people to death, surveying upon them and and harassing them and, and uh, you know, stopping them at uh, on the air, you know anywhere that they can to to pick up some extra cash. I'm sure that the current TSA uh, scandal will result in a system where, yes, for $9.99 a month, you can get a pass uh, key that allows you to go through the airport without being molested. Uh, that'll go right to the government. So um, it's just about trying to constantly um, put people into debt because people in debt are not free people. They they're going to vote in in a way that is not in their interest, and and it's an indentured servitude model. It's back to the Middle Ages in a lot of way. You know, we we forget the Enlightenment. We're back to the Middle Ages. You've got lords and serfs.
0: Well, that's right. And when I brought up May of two thousand and ten. What I was trying to get at was uh, what was happening then politically in Congress that would have motivated a stock market crash?:
1: Oh, well, right, exactly. I mean, they were trying to pass a reform bill, but um, so they, they basically uh, crashed the market. You know, just, um, just this past week, you, know, you, have, you have a couple of examples of that. Remember, in 2008, Hank Paulson wanted uh, three- quarters of a trillion dollars to give to foreign banks and Goldman Sachs, and Congress said no based on his one-page memo. So they crashed the market. The next day, they said yes. Uh, then in May, of the flash crash of 2010, similarly, they were going to pass the reform bill. They want to pass the reform bill. They crashed the market. Then it gets watered down. Uh, just this past week, um, Congress, the new Republican Congress said, look, if you don't uh, preserve these tax cuts for the rich, we're going to crash the market. Th- th- those are the words that they use. The market will crash. So they've got a loaded gun here that pointed at people's heads and they keep using it over and over again if you don't give us more money we're going to crash the market the the, the market is being held hostage they know that they can crash the market because the computers are set up to crash the market they at the push of a button and the idea of markets functioning on their in their own in their own you know to find prices and to go through this thing called free market capitalism is, is finished now it's just being used as a weapon
0: I'm speaking with financial analyst and broadcast journalist Max Kaiser. Today's show, Banks, Bailouts, and Manufactured Market Crashes. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, so then you're essentially saying that the banks uh tell the government what to do. That's the bottom line, right? Well, the banks
1: the bankers Run everything, and they run the government pretty much. And um, there's nothing that the government does now that doesn't serve the banks in some way. Even health care reform, you know, what that served the banks and the corporations. It gave the uh, the pharmaceuticals uh, millions more customers by mandate. Prices are going up anyway, and because people are going to have to go into debt to afford to buy the. The mandatory health insurance it will help the banks because they're going to loan the money to people to buy the, these products and put them into debt. So debt is the goal, and they're doing a great job doing it uh, by, by just putting people into greater and uh, in greater uh, amounts of debt.
0: So how do you view your role in the world of finance and media? You're a financial analyst with a definite twist. Where are you coming from ideologically or experientially?
1: Well, my, my point, my, my my ideology or philosophy is that markets are plastic, that they can be shaped in any way you want to shape them. And the left or the liberals or the progressives never understand, never take it on board the fact that the markets can reflect their agenda just as easily as they reflect the hard rights agenda. For some reason, uh, people on the left think that The markets are immutable, that they're cast in stone and there's nothing they can do to change it. And they're going to try to reform the system by doing everything but reforming the markets, which is like going to, you know, a gunfight with a knife. Unless you're willing to reform the markets themselves, you will never, ever, ever win. And markets and the whole pricing and the way, is completely malleable. Ever since 1971, since the U.S. went off the gold standard and we went into a fiat currency system, the prices are are just basically the result of propaganda. So if the left had the right mix of propaganda, they could just as easily move markets in their direction as the right does. But th- it's funny. I mean, I speak to green groups, you know, the like um, the uh, Green Greenpeace, for example. I was working with them for about a year trying to get them to um, – to, to take a, an approach that was more based on banking than anything else because the banks are the root of all the uh, the corporations' ability to do things that Greenpeace is protesting against. And when I explained to Greenpeace that, look, you've got 100 million euros in cash sitting in a bank. The bank lends that money to corporations that you're fighting against to do the very things that you're trying to fight against. And, That that's a problem. Or when you go into Exxon and you say, here are the ten things you're doing bad. Exxon just buys insurance against those ten things, and to pay for that insurance, they lower their operating standards and cause more problems. Had you you not said anything, the the net result would have been a much cleaner environment. So unless you take on the the economics and the finance of this in this equation, you're you're just making it worse. So uh, my my mission, I guess, is to try to get people to understand how this all works, so that people who are interested in social justice and economic justice can at least go into their reform battles with the right tools, with the right mindset, with they, they understand what's happening. And currently, um, the, the campaign to crash J.P. Morgan and buy silver fits into this because uh, it is now well understood that you have a group of financial terrorists uh, led by J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs And uh, the soft underbelly for JP Morgan is that they have sold about 3 billion ounces of silver that they don't own. So they're they're naked this position. They don't have this silver in stock to deliver. Now, by people around the world buying silver, taking physical delivery of silver, uh, and forcing JP Morgan to cover that position in the market, uh, JP Morgan's stock will go, will, uh, go to zero. It'll crash. It'll be blown apart. And this is a, a very worthwhile goal because um, you would thus be decapitalizing probably the worst of the financial terrorists. And uh, this campaign has caught on around the world. You've got, it's gone viral. Uh, it's being covered by the press internationally. And people around the world now are buying silver, silver coins, putting up a few bucks uh, as, as a global insurrection against the banking occupation as a global effort to decapitalize the the worst terrorist of them all, worse than Al Qaeda by many thousands of percentage points. There's nobody worse than JP Morgan. They are literally the the devil incarnate on planet Earth. And so by buying silver you can you can put them out of business, which is something that has to be done. And the formal NGOs, of course, once again, they don't want to do anything that has to do with banking because they think it's it's beneath them, that it's dirty. They want to win on the moral agenda. But unfortunately, morality doesn't trade on any market, so you can't really quote it. Therefore, it has has no meaning. But uh, the rest of the world, who is not part of any NGO, uh, is saying, okay, we're just going to take this effort on ourselves. Uh, we're going to use our collective buying power uh, and, and take hundreds of millions of ounces of silver off the market, and we're going to crash the sucker. Uh, and it's... Um, Price of silver just at another new thirty-year high. Uh, J.P. Morgan stock is, uh, you know, uh, is, is listless in the water. It looks uh, very fragile, um, and, and so this is a campaign that uh, is working.
0: So Max, you're encouraging everyone to buy silver in order to crash J.P. Morgan, right? Exactly. They're, na- they're naked shorts.
1: That's right.
0: Well, with regard to your remarks about the left, the so-called left, anyway, is not dealing. with, with the markets, but there are always markets, right? Regardless of what system you're living under, I mean, what about socialism?
1: Yeah, this, the capitalism is not the problem um, because um, the capitalism is, is simply um, the, try, the attempt to match up risks and rewards in the economy so that you don't have uh, any imbalances and you have a shot at some kind of um, economic justice and social justice. And what we have in the U.S. today is not capitalism. This is what, for example, Michael Moore's film was, was glaringly missing the point because it was capitalism, a love story, and he was talking about capitalism. But America doesn't have capitalism. America has corporate welfare. America has uh, a system that's... Capitalism means, for example, that there would be... Uh, the risks and the rewards in the economy would be roughly equal. But we don't, you don't have that in the United States. If a bank makes an error, the government bails them out. That's not, they're not taking any risks. If you're making money without taking any risks, if you're borrowing money at close to zero, you're making a highly leveraged bets, and then you're manipulating the market to make those bets pay off, and when your manipulations occasionally go awry, the government bails you out, that's not capitalism. That's not a risk and reward balanced system. Uh, that is uh, a kleptocracy. And so Michael Moore's film really aimed much too low. You know, He, he didn't really get into the fact that the, the actual weapons of mass financial destruction that are being used by banks to commit economic terror, which I think would have been more of a you know, precise look at what's going on. Even Warren Buffett, by the way, coined that term, weapons of mass financial destruction, uh, when he was describing the derivatives that are on the books of these banks. And they're used to Purely to cause uh, the same—they're suicide bankers, as I call them, Lloyd Blankfein, Jamie Dimon—they're willing to blow themselves up and their friends and their family and their community to make a quick buck. That's their ideology. They're no different than a suicide bomber in Tel Aviv. You've got suicide bombers on Wall Street. They cut from the same cloth. They their their mission is the same. Uh, they believe they're doing God's work. They misquote some texts, in this case, uh, the suicide bombers on Wall Street. They misquote Adam Smith, just like the extremists in Islamic culture would misquote the Quran. And they're financed by the same guys. Remember, Osama bin Laden is a yuppie punk, uh, you know, equivalent to Jamie Dimon. He is the Jamie Dimon of, of uh, Islamic extremism. And Jamie Dimon is the Osama bin Laden of market fundamentalism. These two are the two sides of the same coin, except Jamie Dimon's a lot worse. He's a lot more dangerous. He does a lot more damage. And therefore, crushing the stock of J.P. Morgan by buying silver is really a, a great way to restore some kind of economic balance in the system. And, you know, I'm not on the left. I'm not on the right. I'm in the middle. I'm just a market maker myself, a kind of an ideological market maker. And what I've, what I've observed is that the left refuses to fight on a level playing field. They're constantly selling themselves short. They're constantly uh, just uh, think that by being a mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, hope you know, and change is going to do anything. They need to understand the fight before they can enter the fight. They, understand, they have to understand who they're fighting against. So Michael Moore does not do a good description in describing who the people are fighting against. He's, again, just taking kind of lackadaisical pot shots from the sidelines. He's not actually in the fight. Um, what I'm trying to do is just bring together these two opponents to see who's going to really win this battle, but both have to be in the same weight class. You can't have a, a flyweight left liberal go to battle against Mike Tyson. It's not a fair fight. It's not an interesting fight. Uh, and, and it's, it's I think, at least before we uh, all disappear prematurely due to uh, other uh, imbalances in the economy that show up in terms of environmental problems, at least we should have at least one good fight before the end.
0: Now, economist Michelle Chosorovsky said on my show that poverty was the result of macroeconomic policy. Would you agree with that? And what do you think it's going to take? Uh, it looks like the bankers are going to take this to ashes. I mean, what is it going to take... To turn things around, what kind of a system do we need?
1: Well, uh, I would agree in that macroeconomics would be the pushing down from above of a uh, some scheme economically mm-hmm. that um, it puts an advantage for the small group of very wealthy and it's disadvantaged the the poor. Now you see a good example of this all the time. All you need to do is read any newspaper. And you'll see a headline that will say something like, Bernanke is concerned about joblessness and it will not raise interest rates anytime soon. He fears quote-unquote deflation. Now let's break that down for a second and you'll understand what that quote about macroeconomics is all about, which I agree with. Um, Bernanke always sees deflation because... Um, that's his role in the economy as an academic, Ivy League-trained academic, an Ivy League school endowed by that top 1%. He always sees deflation, and his response would always be to create more money and ease monetary policy. That money never goes into the real economy. It goes through the banking system, directly into the pockets of the bank's top 1% clients who buy assets, stocks, bonds, and commodities. And those people, the top 1%, always see inflation. So while Bernanke talks about deflation and responds with a policy initiative, what he does is he's creating inflation for the top 1%, who are the beneficiaries of all the monetary policy of money that's entering the system, which has the effect of a twofold effect. Number one, it debases the currency in a way that constantly keeps the interest rates on that money low, keeps the value of the money low so that wages are continuously debased and the purchasing power is debased. So the wage class and the, the bottom ninety nine percent is constantly being attacked by this currency that's constantly debasing their 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 uh, purchasing power and it constantly as a result interest rates are always kept artificially low. This way the savers never get more than a half a percent on their savings. Pensioners never get more than a half a percent on their pensions. So again this puts enormous pressure on anyone who's trying to save money or work for a living while simultaneously putting enormous profits into the pockets of those who are buying assets, um, stocks, bonds, and commodities. Now, because stocks, bonds, and commodities are going up due to the misperception that is talked about by Bernanke of deflation, it also drags up with it agricultural and energy prices. So that same group of people that is caught in the middle, the bottom 99%, not only are they not getting any return on their savings. And not only are they not getting any wage increases, but the price of their food and energy is going up simultaneously. So they experience stagflation. So you have the three flations operating simultaneously. You've got Bernanke who sees deflation. You've got the top 1% who are experiencing inflation and wealth aggregation. And the bottom 99% who are experiencing stagflation. And it's set up this way on purpose uh, to make the top 1% increasingly wealthy, and it's a macroeconomic policy, as the quote suggests, uh, and it's done on purpose, and it's done on a global basis, and the results are clear. The wealth and income gaps in the U.S. have never been wider, uh, and and this is happening all over the world uh, in these economies that have embraced this style of doing business, central banks uh, pursuing this line, and the results are the same, and the results are also the similar in that you've got now social unrest. In many countries of the world, it's growing every single day and the anger and the violence is growing as a result of this institutionalized macroeconomic policy designed to bankrupt the bottom 99 percent and to reinstitute neo-feudalism so that the top one percent controls 60 70 80 90 percent of the global wealth
0: i'm speaking with financial analyst and broadcast journalist max kaiser today's show banks bailouts and manufactured market crashes i'm bonnie faulkner this is Guns and Butter. Yes, exactly. And the growing social unrest that you refer to, of course, we see uh, massive demonstrations here in Europe. Uh, but now you are quoted as having said that coming unrest in the United States, assuming that, that that's going to happen, uh, an insurrection, I believe, was the word you used, you see this as much more volatile and violent. Could you explain what your view of the U.S. is with what's happening there with regard to the imp- impoverishment of uh, most of the people there?
1: Well, for example, compare it to France. France, there's an infrastructure of protests and manifestation. People are protesting and manifesting uh, their demonstrations all the time. You know, Every month, somebody's on the street. He's trying to uh, negotiate for better conditions or better wages. So the infrastructure is in place, and so they there's a routine. You know, the cops come out, they stand along the road. The people protest, they, they strike. The metro stops working, and as a result, um, you know the the workers, the 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 average folks here in France have been able to maintain a very high quality of life, very high standard of life, and the um, the government lives in fear of the people. And the people like that, since going back to the days of the French Revolution uh, and the Reign of Terror, uh, which was a very potent demonstration of what the people feel when the potentates get a little bit too uh, high and mighty. They simply cut their heads off. And it's very much alive on the streets here. If you take a taxi and you start to talk about, you know, the... uh, the Reign of Terror. Everyone is conversant in this, and say, and will tell you, yes, if they if they get out of hand, we will cut their heads off. So it's it's very much in the minds of the of the average person that their power, ultimately, they have the power. Now in the states, the people live in fear of the government. So it's the complete opposite that you have in in the states. There's no infrastructure of protest. There's no infrastructure of manifestation. The uh, the entire uh, union system has been gutted. Uh, wages are destroyed. Uh, people who actually fight for decent living are mocked uh, and, and by the mainstream media, which, of course, is owned by the same corporations. And so, therefore, when it's time to push back, as it always is, there's always a dynamism between the power and the powerless, the powerful and the powerless. There's always going to be conflicts. And in Europe, this dynamic is understood, and, and so the potential for... Really dangerous violent confrontations is minimized because both sides understand their role. In the US, the powerful don't understand what they're doing and the poor don't understand how to push back. So, when the, when the cyclical nature of this confrontation rears its head, the result will be a lot messier, a lot uglier, and, and so there'll be a lot more violent just simply because they don't know how to do it. You know, the poor people don't know how to protest and the rich people don't know how to be rich. And, and to shut up when they should shut up. You know, the rich in America should shut up because uh, going on television and talking about the glories of free market capitalism when it, all they are, part of a, a corrupt oligarchic kleptocracy, is only putting a big fat target on their back and they should just shut up because you're only angering the people that you're abusing and, you know, uh, it's not going to end well if you just, if you know, you have to learn how to be rich. I mean, this is the thing about Americans is it's a very young country It's a very young aristocracy. The aristocracy in America is very new to the world, and they really don't know how to handle their wealth. Uh, So I I say and I predict that much of it will be taken away.
0: What about the current financial crisis in Ireland and the coming crises in Portugal, Spain, etc., where the governments are under incredible pressure to slash budgets and hand over assets like pension funds to foreign banks? For instance, you've described the IMF bailout of Ireland as Ireland bailing out the IMF. How do you mean that?
1: Well, the IMF is bankrupt. I was going to go belly up three or four years ago. They needed some crises to, uh, to, to, to remain viable, and they are stealing money from Ireland. Ireland has 20 billion euros in cash on the, on the books that they, they don't need a bailout. out. They, they can go fine for a couple of years without any problem at all. They have a big pension system, uh, and the IMF is coming in there, and they're stealing their money. Uh, it's very similar back in the 80s during the period of the corporate raiders when guys like Carl Icahn or, or um, Ivan Boski you know, if you remember these names, they would do these corporate raids where they would borrow lots of money, take over a company, seize the pension assets, fire everybody, and cut themselves a big fat paycheck. Well, this is exactly what the IMF is doing to Ireland. They see pension funds. Um, they see cash. They're borrowing lots of money. The IMF has no money. They're bankrupt. They they're using borrowed money because uh, the IMF is mostly the U.S. and the U.S. banks, and these banks are all bankrupt. You know, these, to say that they can bail out anybody is 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 a, is ridiculous. They they're simply using borrowed money to do a, a leverage buyout of a country to steal the wealth, and and then the the population will be left footing the bill. Same thing in Greece, and Greece is really a tragic story because of course. They should have never been in the euro to begin with had it not been for Goldman Sachs cooking the books of Greece and to make it look like they had a better cash position than they did and then they were let into the euro then a few years later because they don't really have the cash they can't keep up with the rest of the eurozone, and they fall behind so the jackals swoop in and now they're turning Greece into a vassal state. A great place to park your yacht but don't try to get any kind of civil rights or human rights in Greece. Same thing for uh, now in Portugal and Spain. Latvia was totally decimated. Uh, The same kind of things that the IMF was active doing in South America, Latin America for years uh, during the period where a lot of uh, uh, the leaders of those countries would fall out of airplanes and uh, the IMF would come in. Argentina is a great example. I mean, Citigroup totally decimated that country as they convinced the government to put Citigroup's liabilities onto the government's balance sheet and then they forced the people to pay off Citibank's loans. What a genius operation that was so they're using this this technique of the leverage buyout to um go into these countries that um are sitting ducks basically and they're stealing all their wealth and uh they're being successful again because people are not able to articulate the problem well enough to fight against it they again the left as it's called is completely bamboozled by markets and finance, you know, you can ask your left-wing friends today a simple question. Uh, You say to them, ask 10 of your left-wing friends today, say, what is the relationship between interest rate and bond prices? Now, this is the most academic piece of financial knowledge that even a first-year high school economics person would know the answer to, but I guarantee you that if you ask a hundred of your left-wing friends, not a single one will know the answer. That is a problem, because they don't have any idea what they're fighting against. All they know is that they're upset about something, and then that's all they know. And it's not enough, and they're getting killed.
0: What are the prospects for a collapse of the euro and a breakup of the eurozone? We, we are now beginning to hear this yet again.
1: I call it Germany 4.0 which is a new new tech way of saying the Fourth Reich. This crisis is playing into Germany's hands. Remember after World War II, Germany was split up and um, never to be uh, raised again. Then, under the creation of the Euro, uh, they said, well, you can reunify East and West Germany again, but it'll be diffused under the rubric of the Euro. Well, now that the Euro is breaking apart, and Germany will break away. It'll have a reunified country, its own central bank, the Bundesbank, which is essentially the same as the European Central Bank. And it'll be the second biggest exporter in the world, second only to China. And China and Germany will be battling for world superpower status within 10 years. So it's, Germany is loving it, uh, this whole crisis, because as long as it continues, the euro's cheap, which helps their export market. When they do finally break apart, they'll be a superpower. So
0: you do see the eurozone as breaking apart eventually. It, well yeah,
1: because Germany wants it that way, and Germany is always an imperial it, it, it always has imperial ambitions. It's the Fourth Reich. It's the Germany is back again. Germany is before World War II, 75 percent of all the technical texts in the world were written in German. Germans have a, a, a notion of, of, of a certain divine right. Uh, which they will try again to 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 be the world superpower. They're going to try again, and the United States gave them the, the way to do it, and the rest of the world simply opened the door. If you open the door to Germany, they're not going to sit back and think, you know, contemplate their navel. They're going to go for it.
0: I'm speaking with financial analyst and broadcast journalist Max Kaiser today's show banks, bailouts and manufactured market crashes. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about the incredible bailouts of US and foreign banks by the Fed, secretly amounting to over 20 trillion? What can you tell us about the Fed itself? I mean, they're the ones that do what? Manufacture the money, right? Or the credit?
1: Well, the Fed, you know, it's, uh, as Ben Franklin said, one of the reasons why America broke away from the British Empire was the Bank of England. The Bank of England is a uh, usurious, co-opting organization that was undermining the colony's ability to economically grow. And the Constitution expressly forbid the use of any money that wasn't gold and silver, and put a lot of uh, firewalls to prevent anything like a central bank from coming into existence because it's a menacing force to the economy. You you want to be able to coin your own money for your own people. You don't want to you don't want to outsource your money creation to a third party, especially when that third party is aligned with foreign interests. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, America doesn't outsource its nuclear weapons program. To the Chinese or the Iranians, why would America outsource its money creation program to the Europeans and the Russians and the Japanese and everyone else around the world vis-a-vis the Federal Reserve Bank? It's not an American bank. Federal does not refer to America. Federal Reserve is as American as it's like Federal Express. It's just a brand. It's not It's not a federal organization. It's a third party, internationally owned uh, lending facility meant to undermine the dollar in ways that help only the constituents of the Fed. So the fact that the Fed engineered a bailout of its foreign interests was a mandate, of course, by the foreign interests, who still look at America as a colony. America is still a colony. That's what this crisis has revealed. The Revolutionary War of 1776 was a, a washout. It did not produce independence, as some imagine Obviously, if the Fed is bailing out foreign banks with Americans' money, that what do you call that? That's called a colony. American is still a colony. you got 50 uh, colonies now under the American slash global banking flag instead of 13. But it's a colony. Therefore, we need to restage the independence movement and restage the Revolutionary War for Independence because it, it didn't work the first time. That was a big washout. When's the real revolution coming? Because the the first one was a a damp squib.
0: Right, and when you say the constituents of the Fed, you're talking about all the other banks, right?
1: That's right. They are in the business of loaning money in ways that put people into onerous amounts of debt, as is the case with any feudal lord over his indentured servants. It's a model from the Middle Ages that made a lot of people rich and if it weren't for some of the changes back in the last millennium we would still be under that the yoke of a feudal system but because of the uh, what what you know the history of for example the black plague etc which wiped out much of the workforce in europe and forced the lords to actually pay people money to keep uh, care of their estates this is the beginning of the middle class which and which the beginning of the french american russian revolutions but that force of aristocracy and monarchy didn't go away. They're, they want they want to go back to the way it was a thousand years ago. They want to go back to peasants and lords. They don't want they don't, they hate the middle class. They hate the idea that people can get on an airplane and fly around the world for twenty bucks. And and because it doesn't make them special, you know. If I can do the same thing David Geffen can do, what makes David Geffen special? Not much, you know. These people want to be able to do things that nobody else can do. Flying around cheaply and doing these types of things is, is something they want to remove that privilege because it, it just it's not fun being uh, an aristocratic monarch if everybody can do the same thing. What's the fun in that?
0: Exactly, and debt is a system of control, basically.
1: Always has been. Always has been. And this is, again, the uh, the American Revolution... Uh, they didn't want a central bank. To get back to the central bank, there wasn't a central bank in the U.S. until 1913. Then during a lame duck, end-of-the-year session, they brought in the central bank in 1913. Uh, shortly thereafter, they started having financial calamities. They had a big one in 1929, the collapse of the stock market, a direct result of the creation of the central bank in 1913. And, um, and it's been uh, a systematic Picking away at the underlying financial strength of the Constitution ever since. 1971, Nixon, who can no longer afford to uh, the bomb the, the uh, Vietnamese, uh, closed the gold window to, to renege on his international debts. Uh, this brought in the hyperinflation of the uh, late 70s and early 80s, which of course was another period of massive wealth creation, uh, substituting the petro, petrol dollar for the gold back dollar. But the integrity of the system continued to degenerate. Then you had the uh, listing of formalized options trading in the 70s and gaining strength in the 80s and 90s. The options volatility formula, which was created by Nobel Prize winning economists, which is like the equivalent of, of the E equals MC squared formula for matter and energy is the options pricing volatility formula separating risk from reward. So with options, you can trade risk separately from reward, just like you could the nuclear bomb, you can Uh, separate energy from matter. And this, armed with this technology, is the basis of all algorithmic trading, so that any computer can go into the system, figure out the reward, take it, and leave the risk. The risk then becomes socialized, or it becomes um, distributed over the masses who can't afford it, who have to go into debt to pay for it. And this is how, through using computer programs, there's been this wealth confiscation uh, period resulting in the reemergence of an entrenched kleptocratic aristocracy which knows only one uh, deterrent and it was played out in France here in 1889 it's called the guillotine.
0: Can you explain the foreclosure scandal or mortgage gate for instance uh, what was the Bank of America up to? I mean how deep does the fraud go? Well the foreclosure
1: Foreclosure fraud is is an interesting one because it's 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 fraud taken um, to the point of an assembly line. Remember, uh, Henry Ford famously created the uh, the assembly line, and the um, masses could afford cars. You know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and these other banks created a, an assembly line of fraud. It wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't just a few forged documents and a, a few. Uh, you know bribes here and there they created an assembly line where tens of thousands of documents were forged tens of thousands of of mortgages were illicitly and fraudulently uh, induced into the population and as a result uh, by some estimates bank of america is now attached to a 6 trillion dollar liability which is even bigger than the fannie mae freddie mac liability of 5 trillion dollars remember the us has 14 trillion in debt but if you add the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac liability which is off the balance sheet but why I mean they're still owed this money that's that's five uh, plus 14 so you've got uh, 19 trillion in uh, in debts plus six trillion in this uh, Bank of America foreclosure debt so it's 25 trillion actually in debt that the US has not including the unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicaid which is another 50 trillion in debt so the US has 75 trillion in debt uh, the economy is Eleven or twelve trillion in size. Um, Clearly, it's insolvent. The U.S. is insolvent. But getting back to the foreclosure fraud, I mean, in the case of Goldman Sachs, for example, they they committed fraud in a number of different ways. The the mortgages were fraudulently sold. The the people who bought them were fraudulently induced to buy a mortgage. When you when you buy a so-called a liar's loan, there's no such thing as a liar's loan. The, The the seller of a mortgage has a fiduciary responsibility that they, the mortgage of acquirer has some expectation of paying it back To to be involved in a transaction like this is malfeasance on the part of the financial institution. That's nothing to do with the person taking on the mortgage. That's not the problem here. The problem is fraudulent inducement. Okay? It's like, uh, going into court after a woman's been raped and saying, you know, she asked for it. That's not, a, that's not a defense. If somebody ties somebody down and rapes them, the defense can't be that she asks for it. If somebody like Goldman rapes a, a homeowner with a fraudulently induced mortgage, their defense can't be, well, they asked for it. No, that doesn't work. So that was a fraudulent. Then they took this fraudulent uh, paper and they bundled it up into a mortgage-backed security and sold it to banks around the world. That's another piece of fraud. Then, knowing that the banks who bought that paper were going to go out of business, they took out bets in the credit default swap market against the performance of those banks. So they made negative bets against the customers that they sold these to to begin with, based on the fraudulent inducement that started the whole chain to begin with. So that's three layers of blatant, heinous fraud. Any piece of that would put every single one of those guys in jail. And they did it not on a one-off, but on tens of thousands of examples you know, this is a plague of fraud. It's so enormous. that That's the problem is that it's hard to prosecute. It's like trying to, you know, outlaw gravity. It's just it's it's so enormous. It's hard to know even where to begin. And of course, it gets back to, you know, what is it? Uh, Goldman Sachs the modus operandi. If the fraud is big enough, there's no way you can prosecute us, because it's it's like cancer, isn't it? I mean, it's incurable. It's eating all of your organs. There's nothing you can do about it. You're the host. We're the predator. Shut up and die.
0: Exactly, and nothing is being done about it, right? No. Do you think that the control of the media is just or more important than military control of society?
1: Well, yeah, certainly in the U.S., the the media is uh, extremely narrow, and it's it, it controls the agenda. It's not for nothing that my shows appear on RT, which is Russian, Press TV, which is Iranian, France 24, um, and um, in the UK radio station Residence 104.4. I don't do any U.S. Uh, media because, for example, I'll give you a good example here on your your network WBAI in New York. Five years ago. I came to them with a story about why the dollar was at risk and laid out the entire risk to the banking system as it's currently been now understood. I laid it out for them, and they said, this is much too uh, inflammatory for our audience. You can't say that about the banking system. This is the message I got from WBI in New York. So uh, therefore, that information that ended up on Al Jazeera English in a series of documentary films was was understood by a very wide audience outside of the United States because even the left liberal media in the U.S. refuses to tackle banking because they, are, they fear the banks and, and this is a concrete example of exactly that. Max Kaiser, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: I've been speaking with Max Kaiser. Today's show has been Banks, Bailouts, and Manufactured Market Crashes. Max Kaiser has been involved with markets and finance for 25 years. He started his career as a stockbroker on Wall Street. Max Kaiser is the inventor of the virtual specialist technology Prediction Markets and Karma Bank. He is the creator, co founder, and former CEO of HSX Holdings. Hollywood Stock Exchange, later sold to Cantor Fitzgerald. He is the host of the bi-weekly Max Kaiser Report on Russia Today, is co-host of the weekly radio talk show The Truth About Markets on Residence 104.4 FM in London, and is host of the weekly On the Edge with Max on Press TV. He produces documentary films covering markets for Al Jazeera's People and Power series and is a frequent guest on Al Jazeera English and France 24. He blogs for the Huffington Post. Visit his website at maxkaiser.com. That's M-A-X-K-E-I-S-E-R dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfalkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's gunsandbutter.org. Hey, yo! Of your own cipher, and be on the lookout for a spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this within yourself for peace, give thanks, live life and release. You dig me? You got me?